Hello and welcome to the Sacred Live from Rome. We are delighted to be taking part in the Cultures of Unbelief Conference at the Pontifical Gregorian University. The conference marks the end of the major Understanding Unbelief research programme run by the University of Kent and other partners over three years involving 22 projects globally. And this conference is also marking 50 years since another conference convened here in Rome by the Vatican called The Culture of Unbelief, which was one of the first academic conferences on atheism. And you can hear 50 years ago, The Culture of Unbelief, now The Cultures of Unbelief, give you some clue to the kind of diversity that people will be talking about here over the next three days that we're really going to have fun listening into and we'll report back on. Our two guests for our episode today are experts in atheism and non-religion, and I'll introduce them in a moment. The Sacred is particularly delighted to be here, not just for the chance to sample some gelato, but because we are interested in difference and how we engage better across those differences, whether they're differences of belief and non-belief, whether they're differences of politics and values, whether about race or gender, or even just the tensions within an academic department or discipline, which I'm sure you're all complete strangers to, never encounter those kind of differences and disagreements. Every episode, we talk to someone involved in the public conversation, from artists to academics, from journalists to novelists, from politicians to archbishops. And previous guests that conference participants might be interested in include Andrew Copson, Lois Lee, and the co-founders of the Sunday Assembly. My background is at the BBC, so I strive for diversity, if not balance. And I did a little exercise where I totted up all the previous guests recently and realised that I'd spoken to massively more atheists than any other group, which I think says something about um, the people that I find really interesting and fascinating. We discuss how to better understand our own tribalisms and what it takes to be someone who can cross tribes. And we're interested in the sacred in the most capacious sense. I'm really nervous about talking about the sacred in this academic uh, context. I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot. But we mean it really as a way of surfacing some of the values and the principles that are often unsaid, but which underlie our public conversations and our public disagreements. We try and give uh, interviewees an opportunity to reflect on their own sacred values, to locate themselves a bit in their story, um, and then to talk a bit about what they've learned in their work about engaging across difference and understanding groups better. So I'm delighted to be joined by Will Gervais and Penny Edgell. And checked Will's pronunciation and not Penny's, forgive me, is that correct? Will Gervais and Penny Edgell. Um, Will is an evolutionary and cultural psychologist and Penny is a cultural sociologist with an interest in the growth of non-religious in America. They've both been speaking at the conference and I really recommend you go and read their work and they both have fascinating blogs you can look up. I'm going to kick off with the big meaty question. In fact, I'm going to preface my big meaty question with one I don't often get to ask, which is how often does the concept of the sacred come up in your work? I would say in my own work, it does not come up that much anymore. It came up more in my earlier research where I was focusing on religious communities and what those meant to people, why they were valuable in people's lives. Um, my very first um, big research project was my dissertation, and it was looking at what people fight about in local religious communities. And so it, it came up more there. Um, it was one of the ways that um, sometimes people use the language itself, but but this idea of what are your fundamental commitments? I liked the way you put it in your question to us ahead of time. You know, what things would, 
What things would make you feel compromised if those things were to change or to be taken away from you? So that I think was very much part of that conversation in that first project, people trying to articulate, this is essential to me, either personally or in our community. Um, Yeah, within my own work, I'd say uh, the concept of the sacred comes up quite frequently, although somewhat indirectly. Uh, So we do a lot of research on people's core beliefs. So do you believe in God? Uh, Do you believe in an afterlife? Um, And so for a lot of people, that is a fundamental core belief that they wouldn't trade for anything. Uh, So they would certainly consider that sacred. We tend to not use that term as much because we really try to drill into specific concepts. Do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? Uh, Whereas if we we come in with something amorphous, like what do you think of the sacred, especially if we ask that in an open-ended way. Um, I don't know. I'm a, a data nerd, so we need to get it into a spreadsheet somehow, and I'm ill-equipped to do so. Yeah, the sacred is a tricky thing to code. Um, so I'm going to make you do the thing that's quite uncomfortable, often for academics, which having had a bit of warning, what would be your best guess at your own sacred values, or if you prefer to use another uh, way of describing it, feel free. Oh, um, I do not describe it that way to myself, um, but I do think... I like Anne Taves' work on the sacred, and she uses this language of special things, things that are special, more special maybe than other than other things. Um, so I thought about what are those things that, and you also asked about what we were taught growing up. Um, so really some essential things. You respect other people, their inherent dignity, their inherent worth. You take them on their own terms. I think that very much carries through into my orientation as an academic Uh, when I'm studying groups of people um, to take them on their own terms and not to, um, to interpret their reality for them, but really try to give a voice, let them speak, understand their lives on their own terms. Um, For the people in your own life, you're supposed to actually be there (laughs) to be engaged, to be connected, um, to actively help, to go to the extra mile. You don't slack off, I guess, with the people that you love. I think that comes through very much also in my research and, and I hope in my teaching and my mentoring activities. Um, so, And that was very much a thing that my parents said a lot growing up, do it or don't do it. But if you're going to do something, if you're going to be there, then actually be there. Um, keep your own ethical counsel, uh, know what's right and wrong, um, and do it for yourself if the situation is difficult, if people agree with you or not, but kind of to have your own moral center inside. I'm going to dig a little bit in a moment about where those came from, um, but I'm going to ask Will not to, not to let him off the hook what his sacred values are first. First, I should note that uh, Penny came in with notes, so uh, her sacred values might be slightly more well articulated. Do the homework was also on the list. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, if I had to distill what I think of as my core sacred values, um, treat others well. Uh, We have a finite amount of time here, so let's make it less miserable when we can. Um, Things like honesty and transparency and and curiosity about the world. So again, we only have so much time. Let's try to figure out what makes this world tick, what makes other people tick, and how can we make that better for people? Uh, Will, I'm going to get you to go first, just so Penny doesn't have to keep um, jumping in there. Tell me a bit about your childhood. Give us a sense of young Will. Say, yay, hi. Uh, What was your world? And in particular, were there any kind of philosophical or political or religious values, um, religious ideas that have stayed with you, that have shaped you for better or worse, you know, in a reaction against or a reaction to? All right, let's talk about young Will. Uh, So I grew up in Colorado uh, in small towns. I was born in a town called Salida, Colorado, which for any Spanish speakers, the word Salida means exit, good place to be born. Um, And then we hopped around from towns. I grew up mostly in Frisco, Colorado, which is kind of up in the ski resorts. Um, And 
in terms of religious upbringing, we were kind of vaguely Christian. So my grandfather on my mother's side was a minister. Uh, my dad's family was strongly Catholic. Um, but for my brother and I, we we weren't raised especially strongly religiously. So uh, we'd go to church on Christmas and Easter. And if grandma was coming through town, uh, we had a couple of trial runs at Sunday school. Uh, and that would last for a while and then not. Um, but we were definitely raised with kind of firm moral guidelines and principles uh, that met pretty well onto uh, Judeo-Christian concepts. Um, and yeah, I was always curious about religion without necessarily participating in it. Um, let's see, as I grew up, eventually we moved to Wisconsin for a year where I remember two of my best friends, uh, one of them a Protestant and one of them a uh, Catholic, asking me if I was a, a Protestant or a Catholic, and I actually didn't really know what that meant. Uh, but we were 11, so I suspect they didn't either. Um, so I think I, I went with whoever had the better food afterward. Um, then let's hear that I ended up at the university of Denver, which has an interesting religious history. Uh, and I was in a modern religious thought class where, uh, we'd read various works and then debate them in an online forum. And we had one question of, do you believe in God? And I was surprised to learn that I was one of, I think, two people in the class who said, oh, no, I don't think so. But I had never really given it much thought. Um, so that actually started to kind of crystallize my religious beliefs or lack thereof is when I actually started discussing it with others because up till that point it was completely non-reflective. I was thinking sitting in the sessions this morning how many people have a moment of realizations of what they are when one of you guys goes and asks them a question in a qualitative interview and whether there's actually kind of an existential burden existential duty of care um, just to throw that out there. Penny tell me a little bit about young Penny what was her world what formed her what shaped her? Um, in terms of Religious background, I would say my parents were lapsed Catholic and um, quite lapsed. And, um, you know, I don't think that they were ever kind of anti-church in an overt way. But when I think back, I think the fact that they were lapsed, it really did influence a lot of the things that they taught me. So this importance of keeping your own ethical counsel, right? Do what's right, what you know is right in your heart. That, I think, was probably in contradistinction to their image of how they were both raised, um, that there is an external authority. Um, treat yourself well. So you treat other people well, but treat yourself well. I, my parents told me growing up, kind of be your own best friend. Again, I think that was maybe a reaction against the culture they had been raised in that they did not perceive to be as healthy in that way. So I think that there were probably things there that were um, driven very much by their own relationship to religion that at the time I didn't think of it as religious or non-religious. It was just the part of the environment. Um, I was curious. I was talkative. I was a bundle of energy. Um, and my parents really encouraged that in me. So they really encouraged me to be outgoing and they encouraged me to be curious about the world. Um, we were very poor um, and kind of real poverty, not we didn't have a second TV poor. So, um, <laughs> you know, we don't have a smartphone poor. But um, so they also really encouraged me, I think, to um, to really things that I would now think of as resiliency and optimism. They really tried to instill those um, and they pushed me to get a good education. Um, so, you know, to make opportunities for myself. So I think when I look back growing up, it was an experience of kind of a world that was, it was very loving and very grounded and then just started to expand and, and kept expanding. So it's lovely to 
hear people talk about happy childhoods. And here I am now in Rome, very expanded from rural Ohio growing up. It's brilliant. Um, There's lots more I'd love to dig into there, but for the sake of time, I'm going to do something slightly transgressive, it feels, in an academic environment and ask how you both now self-describe what would be the language you'd be most comfortable with, if you're willing to say. And uh, even if you're not, what is that, what is the role of that in academic study in... um, how do we how do we navigate? One of the things that we found often on the podcast is people feel much more comfortable in the realm of ideas. Actually, there's a vulnerability in being clear about where we're personally coming from. And sometimes there's people acting in bad faith. Um, but I know many academics, particularly ac- academic disciplines, particularly anthropology, are in a moment of real kind of soul searching about, you know, the impossibility of objectivity, the impossibility of neutrality, for the scholar themselves, how do they navigate their own identity and their own beliefs? And where is it um, an asset and where is it a challenge for you personally? So as much of that as you're willing or able to answer, I'd love you to have a go. I am. Um, I think that that's, I think that's a fabulous question. I, I, I do different kinds of research. That's, so that's where I'll start, but I will get to the personal, I swear. Um, and I've done for most of my career, I did a lot of qualitative interviewing and ethnography and observation. And now I've done more survey research in the last few years. And so my answer to you is I have really changed a lot over the course of my life. At one point, I would have definitely said I was Christian. I definitely would have said that I believed in God. Um, I went to a Methodist church in high school with a bunch of friends and, you know, was actually quite involved Um, probably in my late 20s, I realized I don't really believe the same things those folks believe. It was just a great community. Um, At that point, I would have said, I'm atheist. Um, A little bit later, I probably would have said, I'm agnostic, because any kind of certainty around this seemed kind of pointless to me. And now I would honestly, if you ask me, I would say, I don't think about it very much. Like It's just not something that I orient my life to either way. But I think that variety of answers that I've experienced and that sense of an identity that evolves and is, you know, influenced by context and changes over time has made me a better interviewer. It's allowed me to both ask more sensitive questions and to listen more carefully to people's answers um, and not to overinterpret people's answers. And I think it makes me a better survey researcher for the same reason, because I understand that, yes, if you ask 3,000 people a question and you give them four boxes to check, They'll pick one of the four. Um, but the idea that the, the multiplicity of meanings that might be, be behind these limited categorical responses, I think I'm, I'm sensitive to that in part because of my own biography. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and how I would identify myself. Um, so by definition, yeah, I'm an atheist. Uh, I don't believe in God. Uh, if you asked me point blank, are you an atheist? I'd say yes. Um, if I were just filling out something open-ended, I might not put that, I think, because some of the new atheists have really tarnished their own brand uh, by being so over-the-top intolerant of religion. Um, But also, I might not identify uh, out of the box as an atheist because that's kind of informationally empty. Uh, So I'm not going to identify myself according to the foods I don't like, um, what I don't believe, which sports teams I don't care for. Um, So that's why I prefer something like free thinker humanist. That tells you something about what I actually do believe. Um, yeah, so that's me. Oh, can I just say, I, I think if you, when you first asked the question, I mean, what I first thought of, if you asked me, I would say that I'm a feminist and I would say that I'm a humanist because for exactly what, um, the reason you just said, Will, I mean, those are the substantive sets of values that, that matter to me, that I actually think about, that I read about, that I tussle with sometimes. 
Yeah, and kind of similar to what you were saying. Um, I mean, professionally, I study people's religious beliefs and and atheism a whole lot. Uh, in my day to day life, it's kind of a non issue for the most part. And I live in Kentucky, where we've got some some strong religion. Yeah. Thank you. And um, let's talk a little bit about academia and academics and their role in the public conversation. Um, how I, and I I run a think tank, which is a kind of sits in the liminal space between, I think, popular debates and the university. And in some ways that's kind of a translation conduit back and forth. But I come from the BBC, so I'm um, more at home in the kind of uh, popular conversation than I am necessarily in academic debate. But um, I'm really keen that we seed into those conversations rigorous research and really good evidence and better questions. Do you feel like academia is kind of taking its place in public conversations, contributing in the way that it should to what is now quite a fractious public conversation? Um, or do you think that it has challenges? And if so, what are they? Um, I think academia certainly should have a place in some of these conversations, especially if we're out there gathering evidence, um, at least in my own field of psychology. Uh, I think we've been falling well short of the promises uh, we make in terms of the methods we've been using. So over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, there's been a big upheaval in psychology and social psychology where we're realizing, you know, we have papers out there that have been cited thousands of times and people have written popular books about them and nobody can independently replicate them. Uh, We'll have hundreds of published studies on a phenomenon that again, when other people go back, we're not finding the same results. So I think we've had lacks methodological standards. Um, Not nefariously so. I don't think we have that many people out there intentionally gaming the system, but uh, part of human nature is it's it's really easy for us to trick ourselves. Um, So yeah, lately we've been trying to bump up the rigor and it's been kind of a an odd time in psychology where people are dividing into camps in terms of people who want methodological reform, people who think the status quo is okay. Um, But I think especially, you know, my field in social psychology, if we want to have a place at the table in these big debates, we, we have to do better with how we accumulate evidence. Have, have you all had much of that in your world? Well, you know, I, I'm not, not so much in sociology. Uh, I'm an associate dean right now, temporarily, actually until next week. Um, and uh, yes, then I go back to being just a professor. Um, so I do, there's a conversation on campus about that. And definitely the psychology folks, the philosophy folks, oddly, um, or, or maybe not oddly, um, the philosophy folks and the, stat, uh, the statisticians and some of the economists are involved in those conversations. Um, there haven't been the same scandals or kind of high profile studies being debunked in sociology. Where I do see it, though, is every once in a while now, graduate students in methods classes from around the country will say, you know, do you mind giving me access to your data set and the code that, oh, not the code, access to your data set and more information about how you ran that analysis. I want to see if I can replicate it. Yeah, that that's really interesting across disciplines. And I should know, I mean, here I am kind of dumping on my own field of social psych. And I don't think we're methodologically worse than a lot of other fields out there. We're just one of the ones that started checking our homework uh, first. So we've found problems everywhere we've looked. Like replication rates are probably sub 50% in, in social psychology. Uh, by one estimate in cancer biology, it's sub 20%. So this isn't a psych problem, it's a science problem. It's been really interesting for me watching the replication crisis unfolds because it feels like in the last, particularly in the last decade, and that's probably just when I've been paying attention, so it might have been longer, that 
there's been a real shift in terms of where our source of wisdom is or a source of understanding of what human beings are like and how we interact. In previous generations, might have been theology, might have been church teachings. And actually, social psychology, behavioral economics, evolutionary psychology feels like it has been having a real moment of, wow, kind of look at all these fascinating and troubling and weird things about us. You know, if you look at the nonfiction bestseller lists over the last five years, it's all kind of me and my weird brain, like you and your weird interactions um, or, or, you know, why we're not what we thought we were. And so to see the replication crisis unfold, it is, it is kind of troubling and, uh, and as with, as it often is, doesn't seem to be crossing over into the public debate that like it's, it, there's very few people who know that that's happening outside the academy and kind of interested kind of geeks like me. Um, so talk a bit more about that, that gulf more broadly, not just in terms of where things go wrong, which is obviously the minority, but why is it so hard for us to get, you know, the great findings of this conference or um, so many of the things that are just sort of given within university settings out into the bloodstream of public conversations in ways that actually help people make better decisions in their lives? I think that there's... Um I think about this a lot. And and part of it, I think, is the reward structure of academics. So um, so everyone here has a day job, as most of us as professors in various university settings. And you get tenure and you get promoted and you get a decent raise when you publish things for other academics. Um, you can write as many um, op-eds in good newspapers as you want. You can be interviewed in shows like this. Um, we do now ask people to list those things in their annual, um, we call them faculty activity reports, but they all get lumped under the category of service. And service is great, you know, but that's not what they promote you and pay you based on. So so I really do think that if, if we want to become serious about um, getting academics to do their own, what I think of as translational work, get their ideas out there, we have to reward them to do it. I mean, it's not... I'm not an economist and I think that, I mean, I'm not actually very comfortable with a lot of the ways that economists think and talk about the world, but they were right about that. (laughs) You know, if your fate, your professional fate doesn't rest on doing this. So it's just something extra that you do. Um, And so I think what we've seen um, that works better given the structure we have is for to have is to have some other people kind of specialize in doing this translational work. So we've got the society pages at the University of Minnesota. We've got another project there. It's a similar kind of web-based project where um, advanced graduate students will go and interview professors about their work and do some podcasts, do some web publishing, do some blogging. I think that when, as more of those kinds of forums become institutionalized and become better known, um, sociological images is another, you know, that those can then be places where I don't have to know how to write a good op-ed or I don't know how, I don't have to know how to do it quickly enough to meet the publication cycle and do it with the right number of words and the right number of hook, you know, the right kind of hook. I can get someone who knows how to do that and work with them. So I think that these these um, places where people specialize in doing that translation for us, but also have the solid academic background, I, I think those are maybe more promising. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of where the problem was, and it really is the academic incentive structure. Um, for my own job, yeah, I largely got hired and promoted based on publishing academic papers. Uh, I try to do public outreach. That might get me a pat on the back on my yearly reports, uh, but nothing more. Um, But also the incentives, they reward us for publishing quick, easy answers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's 
that's not necessarily a good thing when you're asking complex questions. Mm -hmm. And then that just gets distilled even further as it goes from my academic paper to the university press release to the journalist who then uh, their editor is writing a headline for it. So you're losing nuance and context every step of the way. Um, So in some ways, I think, you know, in terms of designing a system for learning truth about the world and then disseminating it to the public, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to design a worse one than our current system. I do think it, so this is, I have long conversations with my team about this because I'm from a BBC background and my team are, are researchers. But what you've said about kind of you're losing nuance and context all the way does feel to me like part of the problem in the sense of uh, in a kind of crowded information environment, us being able to process really complex nuanced messages is very difficult. And so we're often kind of wrestling with this tension of how do you get something across kind of clearly and cleanly. And for me, importantly, kind of narratively and um, I, I want to use the word literarily and I don't mean that but Penny you've written interestingly about wanting to st- having you said you said something like most academics you know have a kind of hung- hankering to be a writer who's it in this room put your hands up if actually you'd quite like to be a writer there's one or two yeah a little shame faced you don't have to be ashamed um, uh, and Penny's done some writing reflecting on poetry and trying to write in ways that are more emotive and um narrative and are beautiful but in your blog post when you're writing about it you sounded like oh, I'm not allowed to do that there but as an outsider I thought well if you could find a way to write about your findings like that I would be so much more likely to read them and I don't think you've necessarily you've not you, you haven't always lost necessarily lost accuracy there's just something in the academic formation that worries about anything that might look kind of flowery or extra or cloudy if you see what I mean is there is there something like that could in, even just in the style of the writing and getting more comfortable with um using those tools as well I think that's a, a fascinating question and I think you're referring to the the piece that I did for the imminent frame which was the most fun thing that I have written in oh decades and I, then I did write a blog post about how much fun it had been to write that um and I think that you know, so in one way, I surprised myself when Courtney Bender asked me if I would do that. I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to do that. I don't know if I can do that. But then I had fun with it and it was great. So I convinced myself that I can do that. But again, I think I would never, and I probably could write about my research in that way and it would never get published in an academic journal. No, but pe- people outside might read it and wouldn't right. feel like they were going to fall asleep within, sen- you know, four sentences in. Right. No. lost them. And I think, no, and I think that's true. And then I think though we are straight back to the incentive problem. I mean, I can do maybe one of these a year. I mean, if I'm not, if it's not, if I have a day job, if I have other things I have to write, um, if I have the teaching and all of the other stuff. So, but I do think it's possible, like I could use my blog more to write about, um, and I've tried to do shorter kind of pithier pieces about my research on that blog um, to kind of, to be a way in, always with a very serious link to the very serious academic paper, just for the credentials. So yeah. you all don't think I'm, I'm a lightweight. Exactly. Um, uh, and there really was data. Uh, but so I've tried to explore that a little bit. I suppose that we could do more with that. But again, I don't know that we... You, it, it's a lot of things. There's no incentive, which means you don't do it very often, which means you don't have practice, which means it's, it takes forever. So there's just a lot of barriers, I think. Um, well, I want to talk to you a little bit about tone because I know you see yourself as a kind of real reformer in terms of psychological methods. And I've been reading a bit of your work on that. Uh, but you wrote something very persuasive on why our tendency to kind of mock or dismiss or disparage is counterproductive. And I was thinking about it because a few days previously, I'd seen a guy called Adam Rutherford, who's a kind of popular science writer in the UK, being very, very dis- 
disparaging about the whole field of evolutionary psychology, but in a way that was kind of, I assume he thought, kind of witty or spiky. But I was just thinking that, you know, because I know some evolutionary psychologists, just how unhelpful and counterproductive um, that can be. But it feels like often in our debates across religion and non-religion, we, we get stuck in a kind of defensive or a mocking or a dismissive mode. Just, and this is, you're going to have to speculate here, which will be hard, but why do you think we do that? And um, in your experience, how can we kind of get better at avoiding that tactic? Yeah, this is a, a tough nut to crack, uh, especially in some of the science reform movements. Um, you'll see in social media, you know, somebody will find a recently published paper and they look into it and it looks like it has dodgy results, um, bad stats, too small of a sample size. And then you'll get this weird pile on. Uh, Twitter's great for this, where within an hour you've got, you know, 50 people all making jokes about how silly this effect is and it never should have been published. Um and I think a lot of the people doing that legitimately think, okay, I'm, I'm doing scientific criticism right now. This is a flawed study. I'm putting out the flaws. And, you know, what's, what's wrong with joking about it? Um, so I like jokes. I like joking about things. But I think that detracts from the message when we have these pylons. Uh, so I think it's, it's not very tactical uh, to go about criticizing research by mocking it. Um, and, yeah, you can definitely see this surrounding evolutionary psychology. So my training is in evolutionary and cultural psychology. Um, and I would say that a lot of evolutionary psychology is pretty solid. It's, it's built on good theoretical background and uses good methods. Some of it's atrocious though, uh, where it's not actually connected to proper evolutionary theory. Um, and so, yeah, it attracts its fair share of criticism, uh, and mocking somewhat justifiably so, but then we have this baby and bathwater problem where people are dismissing an entire field based on the worst of it uh, rather than the best of it. Um, but I think on the flip side, so yeah, mocking, I don't think that's productive. Uh, also, I don't think it's productive for people whose work is being criticized to be overly defensive of it. Uh, if somebody points out a flaw in your paper, good for them. Uh, they've improved your science. So embrace that. And yeah, it hurts. It stings to have, like, I have a very prominent uh, study that failed to replicate. No fun at all. But um, you see people where if people can't replicate their study, they say, oh, well, uh, the replicating team, they probably just uh, don't have enough expertise in this area. Or, you know, that sample, of course, you know, my study in Tulsa is not going to replicate in Topeka. Um, we have these slight contextual differences. And I think a lot of that rings hollow. And it, it really doesn't help things if people get overly defensive. So if somebody's criticizing your work and you stand by your work, go out, run another study, show that you can replicate it. Uh, don't just try to dismiss the efforts. And I think points for mentioning your study that wasn't able to replicate, that's a, a, a good, good thing to do. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, atheism and uh, non-belief in public conversations. And one of the things I've been really shocked by this morning uh, is really understanding more, I, un I understood it somewhat, but understanding more, particularly in America, but also more broadly, the extent to kind of hostility to atheists, the distrust of atheists as moral agents. And I knew that that was a thing in America, but I hadn't realised that it's, it, it um, uh, was more widespread. And also, Will, from your work, that self-described atheists also tend to mistrust trust other atheists. Um, I think obviously that's problematic. What do you think the effect of that is, both for kind of individual atheists and their identity formation, but also in terms of how we engage across difference and build kind of empathy with people who are different from ourselves? I think um, 
I think that's a fascinating set of questions. And we found that in our study too, right? That we had this survey data and it was uh, the non-religious also had elevated levels of distrust of atheists, right? Which is, it was so odd. Um, I, I think in the American context, one of the, the effects that it has on people's lives, I think I'm becoming persuaded that they, that may be different for people um, very much depending on their social context. Um, so living in a very religious community versus living in a bigger, um, you know, kind of maybe an urban area where um, there's either things are a little more anonymous or where it's easier to find your people and form your own networks. I also think that I'm beginning to think through my undergraduate teaching, not through my research, that it it's also generationally quite distinct. Um, the, the generations of students that I am teaching now <clears throat> They are different and they react differently to the course material that I present, whether it's religion and public life. I've been teaching that class for 15 years um, or my class on atheism, which I've been teaching for, uh, gosh, maybe eight to 10 years now. And they just respond differently than they did even 10, 15 years ago. And it seems to me that it may well be the case. And there's there's research that came out. Um, there's research on this. Um, Voaz and Chaves uh, that talked about you know, the, the fact that um, in the United States, we're having the same pattern that was, was had in Europe as well, a cohort replace it, replacement, right? Each successive generation is less religious than their parents. And so to me, my, and I've not done any research on this, but it's one of the things when I finally have time to do research again after I'm out of my administrative appointment, um, I'm going to look into, I think, is does it matter in terms of experiencing yourself as a non-religious person, whether you're in that growing, those younger cohorts where you're going to look around and most of your friends won't be religious. That will be the norm versus someone who say my age, where it is, it has not been the norm in my life um, in pretty much any context, even in a academic department. Um, it's not been, there are more non-religious people there, but it's certainly not the norm to be kind of, openly non-religious or openly atheist or so, so I think it might really be changing. I hope that it's changing and I hope that it's changing in a a more positive direction. Yeah. um, I'd echo basically all those points uh, coming at it from the social psych angle. So um, the typical pattern you find with intergroup attitudes and prejudices, you know, if my group dislikes your group, your group also dislikes my group. Um, and that's a pretty stable pattern across tons of different uh, uh, group pairings. But yeah, we really don't find that. So at least in terms of moral distrust, we don't find that atheists uh, distrust religious people. And I suspect there are other domains where you would find that. So I don't think you'd find atheists saying, you know what, I trust the Southern Baptists as authorities on the history of the earth. Um, so they'll butt heads on some issues, but on, on the moral domain, the atheists seem indifferent to religion in terms of who to trust. Um, and yeah, we do see these cohort effects coming through where typically younger generations are more, I don't know, generally tolerant of religious diversity, I guess. Uh, even if you get aside from the issue of belief in God, I think generally the younger generations are saying like, all right, we have a more globalized society. We have to figure out how to get along somehow. I'm going to ask you a very basic question for our listeners, not for the audience here. Apologies, because you will have thought about this a lot. But in your work and in the research that you read and imbibe, what is the key reason, if if people are asked for a reason, for them either being or becoming non-religious? I've described that group sometimes described as none, sometimes described as done, in the sense of done with religion, kind of. And I know that there's 
difficulty there with kind of, you're, you're sometimes looking at quite different groups, but um, is there a, are there a couple of reasons that come up again and again? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I gave a lecture on this in my class last fall. Um, so I think there's, there are different patterns for people who are, ne- for people who are, again, in younger generations, many of them are, are not religious because they simply were raised not religious. They were never raised to be religious. It wasn't something that was um, kind of important either way. So that's, that's, I think, distinctive. There aren't that many people, again, in my age group, say, who were just raised not religious. We could probably round them all up and fit them in this room. <laughs> you know, so they're just, it's, it wasn't common. Um, I do think that, so the, and Will probably um, knows more about this as well. There has been pretty good research by people like uh, Mike Hout, Claude Fisher, that suggests that for people who have, quote, become a nun or rejected organized religion, it is about a rejection of organized religion. It's about, um, and particularly that um, political liberals and moderates and people who were kind of religious but not really, the rates of exit for them really went up um, in, I think it's like late 80s, early 90s, and seems to have been in response to the mobilization of religion uh, on the political right. right. So some of it is that. Um, and then for other people, it seems also that it's more about a um, – the other thing that's interesting, I think, is that people who – it used to be like you'd be non-religious and then you'd get married and have your kids and then you'd become religious. That pattern also seems to be changing. That's breaking down. It's just not the case that people don't necessarily go back to religion once they have – they form their own families. So there are a couple of different patterns there, I think. Yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. Uh, so we have some work now that we're in the process of writing up where we tried to look at the literature and find different kind of potential causal pathways that people have suggested for why people are not religious. So you have some motivational accounts where, um, you know, where where life is tough and you don't have good health care, education, and so on, uh, religion really flourishes. Um, whereas, you know, you look at Western Europe where all of a sudden we have good social safety nets, good education, religion declined quite rapidly. So that's uh, one line. Um, there's some other work uh, within cognitive science of religion for a long time where people talk about, you know, we have certain cognitive biases and how we process social information uh, and how we look at the world kind of more intuitively or analytically. So maybe those influence degrees of religious belief. Uh, and then you have work coming uh, from cultural evolution where yeah, cultural learning is a big deal. It's uh, from Joe Henrik's, the title of his book, The Secret of Our Success. It's You can make a good case that this is why our species is successful is because we're good at, at cultural learning and cultural transmission. Uh, so in some of our work, we took these different uh, kind of potential pathways to atheism and lumped them all together in one big study. Um, and drum roll, cultural learning is the biggest one by far. So most people on earth who aren't religious, they just didn't get that much religious input growing up. Uh, and you even find that within the U.S. Uh, there's huge regional differences uh, in terms of uh, religious context as people are growing up. And those other factors, yeah, you might get some subtle influence, but the biggest thing is socialization. Um, and that sounds kind of circular, like, oh, why are people not religious? Well, because their parents weren't religious. Uh, but that just kind of uh, kicks the can down the road a bit. Now we need to figure out what led to some parts of the world having this decline in overt religiosity that then leads the next generation to not get the religious inputs in the first place. 
we did um, a piece of work called Passing on Faith, which included some data which showed that p- part of this is about retention rate. You know, if you're if you're non-religious, your children are something like 90%, 95% likely to be non-religious. If you're Anglican, it's about 50%. This is all in the UK. 50% retention rate. Catholics are more like 60%. Muslims are more like 80%. So uh, it, some of it's just, it's just, it's just the numbers. And it's, uh, I think there's something, there's a question there for religious believers about uh, cultural transmission and cultural learning and what is the context in which that's happening and what are the challenges of that in an increasingly kind of dominant secular setting. Um, I want to finish off by asking a question that I'm struggling to kind of form coherently, but it is about sacred values and it's about, um, again, I'm going to ask you to speculate, just be comfortable, no one's going to do a gotcha um, on it. Uh, but if you, from the non-religious groups that you study, from the, whichever one you're most familiar with, what would you guess are the dominant sacred values? What are the things, some of them have come up this morning around autonomy or around um, equality, or I, I think for, for people interested in what non-religious people are motivated by, that might just give them a, a, a bit of extra colour in their understanding. I guess some of the groups I've looked at, uh, so a lot of people who are non-religious but who identify as humanists, I think their sacred value would be, all right, let's let's make the world better. Let's be nice to each other. Let's not destroy our planet too rapidly uh, before we can get off. Um, and then other groups like, say, the New Atheists, they really push kind of a hard rationalist agenda. Uh, so Thomas Stahl, who I believe is here at the conference, has work on uh, moralized rationality. So some people treat rational decision-making as a moral, a moral virtue. Um, so, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I think that I'm thinking of a couple of different groups. Um, definitely the ones that w- would organize more around humanism or free thinking, those kinds of things. Yeah. I think there's this real sense of uh, just, we are all in it together and it, all of us. Um, and it's up to us to make this place better. And so that translates pretty directly into kind of progressive um, attitudes on the environment and on um, kind of social equality, um, you know, a desire to ameliorate poverty. I mean, there's just, those things tend to kind of package or bundle mm. together. Um, I think that there are some atheists uh, and um, skeptics and um, free thinkers of color that are just beginning now to um, kind of self-organize into a, a community more oriented around social justice, which is really trying to uphold the, the kind of particular kinds of issues that those communities face uh, and work together cooperatively on those. And to really articulate a rationale that says there is a non-religious um, rationale for caring about social justice. Um, so, and I think that's, that's, I mean, I, that's the newest group that I've become aware of and they are newly forming just over the past few years of having conferences and things like that. Um, so, which means for an academic, they're findable, right? And there are things you can read and people you can talk to. But I think that's, that's an interesting, so I think there are these communities that are really working very explicitly to say, we, we're non-believers, we're humanists, we have the values that we have. What does that mean for um, bringing about a more just and equitable world? Yeah. Um, you make it sound like, and I, from what I know, this it, this holds true in the main that there's a correlation between the non-religious and a kind of liberal or progressive political lean. I see. I think that's very clear in the states. I wonder if it's slightly less clear in the UK, where religious believers tend to be distributed much more um, evenly across political parties. I also wanted to ask about. I have a, a former colleague called Hussein who's involved in producing this podcast. Who's got a book out at the moment called Follow Me Aki, which is about uh, digital. 
um, digital communities, digital spaces of UK Muslims. But in his work, he's also studied a lot of um, alt-right, far-right. Um, and he says there's a very fascinating thing where you see kind of Christian nationalist or what I'd want to call a kind of Christianist, um, uh, you know, a, a using of Christian language and symbols in a very kind of nationalist, alt-right way, uh, allying with an actively atheist, non-religious, many of whom would draw kind of sucker from a new atheist um, perspective in some of these online communities. I'm, one, have you come across that? Have you, anyone done any work on that particular kind of atheistic um, groupings within the alt-right? Yeah, that's super interesting. I don't know of any specific research on that, but I do suspect that if you looked at say libertarian movements, or if you looked uh, within the U S if you look kind of in the mountain West in you know, Montana, Idaho, uh, you'll see people who at least socially politically would be pretty far right. Um, tend to not be super religious. Uh, they, they just really want the government out of their business. They want religion out of their business. They just want self-governance essentially. Um, yeah. So within some of the nationalist movements, I think you do see a lot of those groups almost exploiting Christian messages uh, more as a branding opportunity than anything else. Because if you actually went through uh, doctrinally point by point, yeah, they're not doing such a great job of, of fulfilling the, you know, help thy neighbor <laughs> message. Well, and I think, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And my guess is that the logic is more of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend versus we actually believe the same things. Um, and I think that when it comes to, especially these alt-right, far-right groups, they really define themselves by who and what they're against, right? That's So that makes them, that makes them findable. Not know? necessarily anti-religion, they're anti-Muslim. Exactly. Um, and so I think that, um, yeah, so, and, and in the U.S., anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, I mean, there's a whole cluster of ideas. And so, so yeah, the like-minded on those issues can find each other. And, and what we've seen in the U.S., I think, um, is that those groups are just incredibly pragmatic about who they'll partner. Well, they'll literally partner with anyone. They're not, um, they're really seeking a kind of political leverage and uh, support that they'll take anywhere they can get it. I promise this really is my final question. Is uh, So I ask everyone to, to, to give some advice kind of on either side of the divide that they sit on. Uh, in public conversations, what would you like atheists to, or non-religious people to do differently, do less of, do more of? And when religious people are talking about or to atheists or the non-religious, what would you like them to do differently, do less of, understand better? Do you want to go first, Will? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I would like to see the non-religious speak, I think, more openly about the variety of the experiences that they have to maybe do a little bit of active debunking. We're not all Richard Dawkins. I mean, don't get me wrong. Richard Dawkins has followers and they, those folks can speak up too. But maybe to for... I'd like to see a wider range of voices speaking in the public arena and maybe doing a little bit better job to, to think about, you know, educating the people around them about those differences and all the different standpoints. I think that a lot of people just literally don't know. It's either a blank slate to them, or again, they see one or two high profile people, you know, they think Sam Harris is a jerk. You must be a jerk too. And, and then it kind of stops there. Yeah, I think, um, 
on both sides, I mean, this sounds kind of trite, but people just need to tone it down, uh, but in different ways. So I think a lot of the times you'll see uh, people on the religious side taking a moral high ground, uh, and especially the new atheists and people on the non-religious side uh, thinking they have the intellectual high ground. And I don't think in either case, A, it's probably justified. Uh, most people are pretty morally ambiguous and nobody's quite as clever as they think they are. Uh, but as long as everybody thinks they're better than the other side in some dimension, that's not going to help. It's not going to help have good conversations. It's not going to uh, build bridges at all. Penny and Will, uh, thank you so much for being with me on The Sacred. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.